You are listening to Hear Her Sports, a podcast for active, adventurous women who love hearing stories from other active, adventurous women. I am your host, Elizabeth Emery. In every episode, I introduce a female athlete or woman in sport through a conversation about who they are and all the terrific work they're doing. This week, I speak to Erica Hood, one of the daughters in the mother-daughter Team Hood trio, all founders of SIAT, to talk about the program and their ambitious, far-reaching goals. Similar to how Jenny Wynn, who we met last week, started the sports bra, Erica, her sister and mother, didn't think far into the future when they first started planning trips for the youth in their community. As you will hear Erica saying, in the beginning, they were just doing something, trying something new. So consider that for yourself. Try something new. Who knows what will happen? So much has grown out of those very first SIAT adventures. We talk about their incredible programs that provide opportunities for black and brown youth to experience activities in nature, like skiing, scuba diving, cycling, and traveling in the U.S. and abroad. Erica and I also talk about climate, being stewards of the environment, snorkeling in the forest, establishing a mentorship program and career building network, and most importantly, shifting the narrative of who is outdoors. I'm honored Erica took the time to be on the show. Let me introduce her and Syed. Erica Hood was born and raised in Cleveland, Ohio, and has over 15 years of experience in community organizing and advocacy. She believes that authentic engagement matters most when working with the community. In 2009, Erica, her sister Ebony, and their mother Marsha founded SIAT, formerly known as See You at the Top. SIAT's mission is to support its community through culturally relevant programming in the natural and built environment. As a co-founder of SIAT, Erica is able to transform the lives of youth and adults in Cleveland by curating culturally tailored opportunities for community members to engage in nature and outdoor recreation. In spaces that are historically white, she understands how important black and brown representation in nature is and has committed to maintaining a level of expertise in all activities that she encourages her community members to try. Most recently, that meant that she and her sister became certified scuba divers. As a member of a community that suffers from toxic stress and chronic diseases, green space is an integral component of the physical and mental healing of her community. Erica recalls having supportive parents in her youth who gave her the opportunity to try new things. They exposed her to parks, informative landmarks, and the legacy of cultural contributions found across America. She has passed on this love of travel to her incredibly talented sons, Greg and Duke. Well, hello, Erica. You know, it is super great to have you here. I can't wait to find out more about SIAT and what you have planned for 2023. So thank you and welcome. Thank you. It's nice to be here as well. It's been a while. It has been a while. Yes. Um, You know, well, let's just start with the super obvious, you know, tell me about See You at the Top. So we are an organization that began its journey in 2009. And I would say that my mom definitely played a role in the start of SIAT. You know, we were watching commercials for the upcoming Winter Olympics. And my mom was like, you know, it's just crazy. The diversity that does not exist in winter sports. And she's like, let's just take some kids out skiing at Boston Mills Brandywine. We can write a grant for it. And let's just see what happens. So we were super optimistic as her daughters. We're like, let's do it. We had both skied in school. So we had that experience. So we were super ready to help her out. And we wrote the grant. We were funded by uh, Neighborhood Connections back in 2010. And 
what we saw was that our community members were like, huh? Uh-uh, no way. It's cold. It's dangerous. Someone can hit a tree. They're, they can break a leg. Like, there were all of these, like, negative uh, attachments to skiing and snowboarding within the community. But we did have a small group of nine kids that we took out that first year. In our minds, it would have been much larger. But after that success, like, we began to turn families away. So they saw us doing it in the community. We had to turn folks away for subsequent years because our capacity just, it, it's just crazy to demand after folks saw people of color actually taking people of color out doing it. They were super excited. And I think, you know, we felt obligated as an organization to build programming throughout the rest of the year that exposed our community to, you know, fun outdoor activities where we may have been a bit hesitant to try um, individually. You know, I I love talking about representation because I think, you know, it's sort of a buzzword, but at the same time, I don't think a lot of people realize just how truly important it is to be able to see yourself doing whatever it is that you never would have thought of otherwise. Absolutely. I think what makes IAT so special is the fact that we come from, like originally when we wrote our first grant, it was to take kids out in the neighborhood that I grew up in, you know, like where we were living. So we were a reflection of the communities that we were trying to serve, meaning that if we can do it, you can do it. Any of those barriers and challenges and stereotypes, we grew up with that. We understood it. We can help work people through it. So it's so super important to see folks look like you. I think a lot of times organizations that maybe go into communities of color to try to expose youth to, you know, a myriad of things. So let's just say outdoor recreation. It is very impactful, but it still creates a distance. It still is a buffer there where that young person can say, but it's still not something that, you know, quote unquote, we do, our community does. They still see it as something else that other communities do, but they just had the opportunity to try it. Whereas with Syed, we're owning that space. What was that first session of skiing like in 2010? It was right. The winter of 2010. Yeah, it was, I mean, <laughs> it was cute. Like, you know, we had a small group, thankfully, and we had support from a Black ski club. We just had folks that were just super excited, like, okay, you guys are doing this. But I think a lot of it was telling the parents to simmer down. We got this. Like, <laughs> don't project that negative energy on your kids. They're excited. We don't need to put those fears on them. So it was a lot of managing relationships with our family members and our parents and our kids and encouraging our kids that they can do something. So I think you know, we were starting off as actually we weren't even an organization that we were just we were just doing something, you know, we were just trying something new. So like the whole idea of this being an organization 13 years later was not necessarily in our minds. Then we were just going to you know, try to impact some kids and see if they enjoyed it. And it was just a new experience for us all. But what we saw were, you know, smiles. We saw mad skills like for something that these kids try for the first time. They just excelled and they were great. They were happy. You know, they were doing amazing, like way better than I did my first time out. So after then, we knew we definitely had to, like, continue this work. And since that first skiing experience, you've totally expanded the sports that you do. So what are you doing now? Yeah, so we were like, okay, what can a typical year look like for Syed? And we had a lot of folks that said, you know, this is a great program. We do this. We do that. But it had to, like match. So, you know, so many people offered different opportunities for us. But again, if it wasn't something where people of color were just historically underrepresented, if it didn't offer, you know, those internal challenges within a community, if it didn't speak to our narrative of kind of combating history, it really 
didn't jive with us. So as we began to like develop as an organization and kind of set those core values of what we wanted our work to look like, it began to shape our program and moving forward. So a lot of what we do is to combat toxic stress, is to let kids be kids, is to kind of release from your daily uh, stresses. We always used to say that SIAT offers a moment of relief. Like we know we couldn't change the world overnight, but if just for a moment when you come out with SIAT and you try our programming, you felt amazing and it kind of refueled you to just go back out and deal with the world. So that looked like running. It looked like rock climbing, biking, hiking, camping, kayaking on the river, scuba diving. So all of these kind of play into our story as people of color as to like why we don't do these things, maybe the access issues, maybe historical implications, but also like even with our scuba program, it tells a story. It connects us back to our history as we do archaeological work underwater to connect our ourselves to those slave ships where our ancestors were forgotten. So everything has to have meaning in that way. I want to get back to scuba, but first, could you talk a little bit more about what you meant by combat history, really specifically? Absolutely. So if you do this type of work, outdoor recreation, it's a, it's a nice little group of folks in Cleveland and Ohio. Our network has expanded to many groups across the South that we connect with as like our brother and sister programs. And if you do this work, you know that historically we had a connection with land out of just mere survival, whether it was getting our food from the land, whether it was how we made money to you know take care of our families taking it back even further to our ancestors in Africa. Like we had this connection with land and through enslavement and through looking for opportunities for freedom through Jim Crow, like our connection to the land, just it began severed because it was made scary and life-threatening and a dangerous place to be. So as we think about taking hikes in a park for mere relaxation, we go back to the Jim Crow era and we may have seen uncles and brothers and, you know, folks being lynched and hanging from trees. So like that is real. That trauma is real that we carry. So even though I didn't live in that era, I'm carrying the trauma of my grandmother who lived within that era. And those fears are so deeply inset within our DNA and our being. So that is like a scary piece of history that we have to work through to begin to reconnect ourselves with outdoors in a way that it becomes a positive space to be in a space for relief. How do the kids in your programs, how do they react to sort of that aspect of the programming that you do? So the way our kids kind of see it, like we speak this in our advocacy work, we speak this in our nature equity work, how it looks to our young people is let's try something different. Let's try something new. We're here to hold your hand through it. And guess what? There are folks that look like you that have tried this before. Look at me. I can do it. So we do it in a way, not necessarily tell them that story of the past and drill it in them all the time. We do speak those truths with our young people, period. But weekly or at an outing, it looks as instilling confidence in them, conquering something new, and then showing off those skills. Again, I can't you know, really repeat enough how amazing these kids are and skilled and athletic and uh, just fearless when it comes to trying new things. I just, I think that's my biggest takeaway is that given the opportunity, we will have a lot more gold medalists and like cycling champions and 
growers out there that have this skill, it would just look a lot more diverse when it comes to like the U.S. Olympic teams and things like that. But, you know, I think that we encourage confidence in just trying something different, stepping out, but using us as a model that they can do it too. Most times we don't have to like even coerce them. They are so ready to just be kids. You know, a lot of their lives are so scheduled and, you know, they have to be quiet during these classes. They can maybe have to be quiet at lunchtime in some of these schools. They have to be, you know, like super quiet and structured and walking a line. When they come with us, no, you can be a kid. <laughs> you yeah. can release that tension and be a kid. And I think, you know, that's our biggest selling point for sure. Right. You touched on so many topics I want to get to and are in my list of questions. But first, talk about some of the successes that you've seen. I mean, you started back, okay, so the first ski event was in 2010. So that's been 12 years. Like who who has done what in those past 12 years? So, you know, for us, it's an introduction to something where they can be great. You know, originally when we first started, we were like, oh, my gosh, these kids are amazing. They're so skilled. We're going to try to get some kids on the junior Olympics team, the Olympics team. Like we were so pumped to try to get a kid into the Olympics. And we knew through our National Brotherhood of Skier network of different clubs that there were many other clubs trying to do the same thing. And then we were like, "Okay, at the end of the day, we're in the Midwest we don't have mountains for kids to train on. And then we have to like, you know, think realistically about our impact. So for us, you know, it's begins, we begin to kind of scale down and think through, you know, what could be realistic for our kids. So I think for us, a success would have been just breaking those barriers and kind of working through those stereotypes. A lot of times when we write grants and we have to do a grant report, they want to know how many kids and who, excelled at this and what did these takeaways look like but for us honestly it was getting kids outfitted in proper gear to get out on the slopes to actually go up the list and come down the hill to show up at the bus you know depending on who their family was and what communities they were coming from this has been a challenge within our community so a lot of those successes that we had to relate to our grant funders definitely were not the successes that we cheered and you know were grateful for on any typical Saturday morning. But we can boast, you know, we had thousands of kids go through our programming, whether it was individually through just our recruitment or whether it was through a CMSD field trip opportunity through the years. Uh, We've also worked with groups like Jack and Jill, you know, to get some young people out on the slope. So when we just recently kind of look back at like our SIA impact, I mean, it's amazing when we think about the thousands of kids that have been through our program and then those who have become Black Diamond years throughout their programming. So they started off, you know, super scared and, you know, no skills. They had no idea what they were doing, but they can excel to be an advanced skier that we can take anywhere in the country. When I reached out to you to be on the podcast, I mentioned that I had read the article in the Cleveland Magazine and there were only boys mentioned as sort of your success stories. What's the situation with girls in your program? Um, We love our girls. So it's kind of this dynamic where you have teamhood is a mother-daughter trio. So we always say like we're heavy on the girl power within our organization for sure. I think it was just the timing of the article and who was accessible to us at the time that a lot of our boys were quick to respond. So it does not have a reflection on you know, who goes to our program. I think that when we look back at our list of SIAT alum, we have a nice, a nice equal group of, you know, boys and girls who have gone through the program and who are still invested in this family. So, um, yeah, that didn't reflect on, you know, our boys are out here killing it, which they are, 
but um, don't discount our young ladies who've gone through the program. They're still heavily involved. They're still doing things. Some of them are away at college, uh, where our boys were, you know, away at school, but they just they just answered the call quicker. So, <laughs> well, I'm glad to hear that. Very glad to hear that. Yeah. So I want to get back to scuba for a second. Had you been a scuba diver prior to starting scuba with Syed? No, I snorkeled. <laughs> um, <laughs> like on vacations and things like that. I'm actually terrified of underwater critters. Like I think the ocean is beautiful and what lies beneath is beautiful, but I don't necessarily have to be in that space. So it took a while for me to even warm up to the idea. But in true Syed fashion, whatever we introduce our kids to, they have to see us doing it. So we connected with uh, one of our partner organizations, the Tennessee Aquatic Project, Youth Diving with a Purpose, with Mr. Ken Stewart out of Nashville, Tennessee. He is like a, a uncle to us. We love him so much. This man is amazing, just amazing. So he took us under his wing to try to get some young people geared up and ready to join youth diving with a purpose and hopefully diving with a purpose as they become adults because the work to connect our stories underwater was just that important. And then also to that, being environmental stewards and having our young people poised and ready to do environmental work when it comes to coral reef restoration. I mean, that just really tied into to our passion and what we wanted to do. So Ebony and I had to first go through with this cohort of kids. You know, we had 10 kids, Ebony and myself, my sister, and we went to get our scuba diving certification. And when I tell you <laughs> the challenges, oh my gosh. And I think for us, because we're older, that fear just set in. And then being on with our kids, it's like the pressure to hurry up and, you know, succeed so we can get our certifications and then help our kids. And it was kind of the other way around. Like our kids <laughs> nailed it and they were looking back at us like, Miss Erica, are you okay? Miss Ebony, can I help you? And we're like, thank you. So it was, a, it was a great moment. That's great. Ebony is really involved in environmental issues and, and that gets into the SIAT programming too, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. When we think about um, anything environmental that we can tie into, Ebony likes to say that because of our work being in the outdoors, we're like the canaries in the coal mine. So even throughout our time since 2010, we have seen just our winters change over time. We have started our ski programs later and later in the year because there wasn't snow. It was 50 degrees out on the slopes, you know, so we've seen these, we've seen climate change in action for sure. And I think From our very first scuba diver five years ago, they've been able to come back to us now at the age of 20 to see the bleaching of the corals increase and things like that. So now we get to see that kind of happen underwater. So, yeah, just being outside and being outdoors through this programming over the 13 years, we're like, we have to be responsible. We have to be stewards as we're out here, I guess, taking so much from nature as far as the healing properties. How are your kids responding to the environmental issue aspect? Oh, they love it. You know, it was so funny. We just had a group at the Greater Cleveland Aquarium last week, and we were watching the documentary Chasing Corals for our scuba group. And I was like, they're going to be bored out of their minds watching this documentary. It was a day where we didn't dive, so it wasn't as exciting. It was a learning day. At the end of that documentary, they were appalled. They were just like, what? You know, what do we have to do? I can't wait to get in the water. I can't wait to, you know, start growing corals again. So it gave them energy and it gave them purpose behind their diving, which I think is great. So when it comes to the environmental aspect, I think they realize the impact that climate change can have on the fun part. And they're like, no, don't take this away from us, please. You know, I want to have more weekends to ski. I want to 
you know, try and do new things. And if our, our earth is impacted by that, you know, all of us are kind of screwed. So, yeah, kind of. <laughs> right. Kind of. Yeah, yeah. To, to say it nicely. Yep. Uh, you mentioned that in 2010, when you first started this idea, you know, there was no organization, you were just doing something. So, mm-hmm. you know, like, what were some of the things that the three of you, you, your sister and your mom were thinking about at the time of getting Syed off the ground? And like, how did, like, how did that happen? It's interesting. Like, we've always been a family that traveled. And as we like, made our annual Mecca down south to see our families, you know, from the south, we would stop at national parks in a way, or state parks in a way to eat lunch or, you know, move our legs by taking a quick hike and stuff. So then we became these avid national park folks where we get our national park passport book and we would stop at any and every national park along the way. And our families began to, you know, become interested. Our our real blood family members, they would be like, oh my gosh, that's so cool. So we would begin to gift passport books or if we took a road trip with a new, you know, my aunt or something, they would be so down to stop at the national park. So we were like, you know what? People kind of began to like gravitate towards that and ask us to help plan them trips and you know, what do you guys have next? You should document it. And we're like, really? So we realized that, you know, we kind of stood out as um, a family that did things that, you know, really wasn't traditional to what most folks did. Now, I will say that Black families aren't outside in the parks, but, you know, we're like having family reunions and cooking out and dancing and having fun. We're recreating in a way that is, you know, culturally relevant. So for us to do hiking and just seek out some of these historical places was just a little bit different. So I think that passion aligned with like being able to take young people and expose them to these things for the first time and seeing like that, that aha moment where they fall in love. It was just a no brainer. It's kind of interesting when you start something new and you, you met with those challenges of funding and will we ever get kids and, you know, how are we going to make this work? It kind of just worked for Syed. And I think we're grateful to this day to be able to have been given a calling and to like have it manifest. How are you thinking about the kids being physically active versus being sporty versus being adventurous or competitive? Like, how does that all work? And how do you see, like, how do you see all that working together? So I think we want to create a space where everyone feels as though they've accomplished something personally. So if it's a kid that is typically more into books or more of an introvert and they come out and they, you know, they're a beginner or intermediate skier for the first four years. We still celebrate that. If we have one that's doing backflips off of the rails and are completely into, you know, like all of this freestyle stuff, we celebrate that. So I think a lot of times the look of the outdoors, if you just Google, what does an outdoorsman look like or, what does an environmentalist look like? You'll see runners, um, bikers, and not just on trails. I'm talking about they'll show those like freeways out west where there's like a straightaway of like 10 miles and you'll see a person running in those little shorts and some running shoes. That does not look like everyone. So for us, we're creating a new narrative of who is an outdoor person. And that could be any of us. It could be any of us. I want to change that narrative of just a slim woman and some little Lululemon leggings and like a muscular dude. Like, no, 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 no. It could be any of us. Um, Because again, the challenges within a community to just get outside in that space can be great. And then depending on people's like 
introduction to the outdoor world. We've had kids that we've had to like completely slow down on hikes because we thought that they were being challenged, you know, breathing hard. And I'm like, this is a huge accomplishment. So yeah, we like break all that down. We love a little competition and we let our kids have fun in competitive ways differently, but that's not the tone to be an athlete, to look a certain way. That's definitely not the the environment that we have. That image of like the little person in tiny shorts and, you know, that's hurt all of us. I mean, Mm -hmm. not just BIPOC Mm -hmm. people, but everybody, Mm -hmm. because there are so few of us that look like that. Right. Yep. Yep. I think it's it's a dangerous narrative to say. And then it also, for people who don't look like that, it sets you back further. It, It creates a longer distance to travel in order to feel like you are a part of the outdoor world. And that's what we're trying to break down. Yeah, that's great. You've also started, I understand, a national program called Get Black Outside. Yes, yes. Tell me about that. So I think I kind of mentioned earlier how we have these like sister organizations across the country that we uh, made these awesome, you know, relationships with and began to build relationships through outdoor programming. So SIA isn't the only organization in the country that does this type of work. And, you know, through just like seeking other folks out and having these natural connections with like Ken Stewart in Nashville, um, things like that, we've been able to, you know, sit down and say, hey, we're in these spaces often. There are other folks like us. Let's get them together and see if we can create a national organization so that we can go for larger grants, so that we can share resources about maybe getting government grants. And, you know, depending on where we are in our journey, we can definitely help a newer organization come along. So that is where Get Black Outside came from. So we were kind of brainstorming back in uh, Crystal River, Florida some years ago, and the idea came about. And then we had the opportunity to get a grant through the United States Forest Service in order to do some programming to bring, you know, non-traditional forest goers, you know, to the forest to try it out. So, of course, that meant our communities. And they gave us a couple of dollars to make that happen. We were able to launch our first freshwater snorkel through their freshwater snorkeling program. And then we made it a camp out so folks can just feel great. And it was all facilitated by us. So the Forest Service came out to do the snorkel piece. But again, to balance that representation, we worked with our folks that we knew were like scuba certified or outdoorsy people to make sure that it was a balance of folks that you would see in that space. Again, we always want to show us doing the work. So that was important. So this is our third year. Explain to me this snorkeling in the forest. Yeah, so a lot of times we go snorkeling, you know, off of those cruise ships or we're doing a beautiful blue water and all that good stuff. So the forestry service wanted to say, hey, don't discount our streams and rivers that we have within the U.S. So the forests that we utilize now are Monongahela National Forest in West Virginia. And I'm talking about beautiful, crystal clear cold water. But it was like so gorgeous. Uh, We do Ocala national forest where we snorkel in alexander springs and that has like actual fish and you know a lot of different underwater plants that we don't have of course in in west virginia we do george washington jefferson in the dc area cherokee national forest we have the opportunity to work with these forests and work with the staff to see some things that look a little bit different than what we would see probably in the caribbean of course but um, it's a learning experience for sure that's so cool why is it important for you to be outside? Me personally. For me, it's like when the 
daily stresses when it's like my environment grows smaller, my house grows smaller. When I hear my dog work, I hear my kids, I'm opening emails, I'm doing work and I sit back and I'm like, oh my gosh, why are my shoulders so tight? Why am I breathing so shallow? I need to get outside. So I will pack up my stuff. You know, I'll come back to this later. I'll go hop. I'm close to Euclid, the Metro Park here um, near South Euclid. So I go hop on a trail or I go down to the lake even and sit in my car. I have to do that to balance my stress, just my my daily stress. During the pandemic, um, as you can imagine, we were all suffering as a country, as a as a world, you know, going through this, the fear of this pandemic and then the fear of civil unrest. It was just too much to bear. And what got me through was taking my meals outside of my porch, going outside and grounding in my front yard and just walking, just walking, walking with headphones on, listening to a podcast, maybe even listening to like some classical music just to take my mind off of it. I need my community members to find what works for them so that we can begin to combat this stress. Well, we're here in ski season. As you mentioned, snow is coming later and later. <laughs> so what do, you have, <laughs> what do you have planned for 2023 ski season? Um, we just have our fingers crossed, man, that we can get out there. Our first day out on the slopes um, will be January 8th. And then we'll have 110 kids between wow. Syed and our ski club. So this is the first year that we've ever had that many young people. We've only like maxed out at like 40-ish, 45. And now we're going to have 110 kids on the slopes on Saturday evening. So pray for us <laughs> that we make it through. Um, I think it's going to be an amazing, amazing season. Maybe half of our kids are brand new. A little bit over half are brand new kids. I've never done this before. Wow. So, How many adults be- do you have? No adults. These are all young people um, up to 18. So five to 18. No, but how many adult uh, oh, like chaperone? chaperone type people? Um, So between the uh, about 10. Okay. Yep, about 10. Good luck. <laughs> <laughs> you got to do a follow up with me when I'm private. No. I think so. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to claim a wonderful season. I think it'll be great. Yeah, that sounds really fun. In this episode, Erica and I speak about confidence. At the moment, I'm enjoying The Confidence Code by Caddy Kay and Claire Shipman. You can order that book at hearhersports.com books. While you are on the site looking at The Confidence Code, take a look at other books recommended or written by my guests. It's a very fun list, and every time you order books through the Hear Her Sports Bookshop page, we get a small piece of the purchase and you support local bookstores. So check it out at hearhersports.com slash books. Have you ever wanted to know how to win a Formula One Grand Prix? I mean, really know. Know about the driver tactics from the cockpit, the strategy calls from the pit wall, and even the mind games in the paddock. There's a lot more that goes into winning a Grand Prix than just 90 minutes of racing. So every week on the F1 Strategy Report, we're taking a deep dive into the decisions that shape every result. Hey there, my name is Michael Laminato, and every week I'm joined by an expert guest from the paddock to talk through the big calls that won the race and the missteps that resulted in bitter defeat. Before every race, we'll look back at the previous year's result and consult the current form guide, and we'll be in your feed after every Grand Prix, dissecting the outcome and what it means for the championship. So for your regular hit of Formula One analysis, subscribe to the F1 Strategy Report wherever you get your favourite podcasts. 
The Strategy Report is a beer mogul podcast on the Evergreen Podcasts Network. My name's Michael Laminato, and I'll catch you after the chicken flag. And now let's get back to Erica Hood, a co-founder of SIAT, formerly known as See You at the Top. SIAT's mission is to support its community through culturally relevant programming in the natural and built environment. So I recently talked to Anouk Petit, who is the chief of sport at USA Ski and Snowboard uh, for the podcast. Mm -hmm. And we discussed increasing diversity and, you know, it was all kinds of diversity. She talked about gender and racial and sexual orientation in snowboards. I know that your mission is not uniquely focused on, you know, getting somebody onto the Olympic podium, although, you know, you mentioned that yourself, that was certainly is an idea. So like, what would you like to see happening at the national federation level that could provide more opportunities for BIPOC athletes? And, you know, not just as an athlete, maybe, but as coaches or in another capacity, like in tech or in physical therapy? Yeah, I think that it takes all of that representation across all of those fields in order to begin to change what people see and think about, you know, U.S. sports for sure. Even locally, we're working on efforts to try to get more black and brown ski instructors at our local resorts. And this Mm -hmm. is across the country. This is a big movement to try to say, like, even kids in Syed who've been doing this since 09 are now in their 20s. And the resort is begging for them, like, please, let's get them to be instructors. We need to, you know, have one, more instructors and two, black and brown representation. So I think it's important if we start there and begin to kind of scale up from there. I think nationally, I mean, some of the barriers that we face, aside from living in the Midwest and not having access to some of these spaces where they need to train, finances. Like, I mean, we need to look at equitable ways to tap into communities of color, to pull out some of these athletes that are just as good as some of these folks that are resourced and have money to kind of fund their their training and figure out ways to make it happen across the board. We need to think back about the decades where the representation has not occurred. What can we do? If we fuel more people of color into the sport, then that means we have more fans. We have a larger following. Like it only will increase the energy behind U.S. sports. So I think it's just super important. We try in every single way to think about careers across the field, whether it's in some type of STEM career that, you know, can relate back to the ski resort as far as like making snow or environmental careers, archaeology, marine biology, like every single thing that we do, we try to pull out, you know, the careers that kids can have from doing this work because, you know, essentially you'll see somebody cling on to one of our activities over another. Um, And we're always ready to like give them a real live person that they could talk to about this career and hopefully like usher them along the way. It's a part of our work as well to try to handhold them into exploring any career options that they want. I get really frustrated when I hear discussions about, you know, like it's going to take time. I'm I'm not very patient. And, (laughs) you know, I mean, that was one of the things that Anouk Petit was talking about is just that, you know, like it's, it's a long process and I get, I get frustrated about that. I mean, is there a fast track way to deal with this? Yeah, I think that we've seen uh, an example that I use is COVID. You know, when COVID-19 impacted our globe, we worked at lightning speed to come up with vaccines and procedures and policies to change money within the government to give people real money in their hands because they were getting laid off. I mean, we were moving at lightning speed. We were doing things at a pace that we were told could never happen. And I think that that's how we have to look at 
diversity and equity within these fields. We can do whatever we want. We can change policies real time. It can happen. God forbid we work at the pace that we've been working at because it has not been moving a needle at all whatsoever. So I think that we need some really courageous folks that can be at the table, these change makers that are in these spaces that might have an inkling of passion towards diversity, just make it happen. We are here on the ground supporting you in any type of way that we can. And on the meantime, we need to work from our end to try to get seats at these tables to make sure that some of this stuff has changed. But yeah, I'm not a very patient person, number one, because this is impacting my life and my kids' life and my grandkids. Like I'm just tired. Um, I'm exhausted by it all. And I know that when we can, we can overturn policies overnight. So I just encourage all of our folks that are in these spaces, be courageous, make it happen. We're not going to be great until everyone is great and everyone is represented. Um, It's just that important. I love that. We're not going to be great until everyone's great. So you talked about money. Let me let me ask you this. So if the U.S. ski and snowboard said, hey, send me one of your athletes, two of your athletes and we'll house them and blah, blah, blah. Would you have athletes that would be interested in doing that? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I will also like be super fearful of where they're going. So that's another thing. We have like organizations that are like, we want to diversify our representation. And it may be a department that is ready to diversify, but overall the environment of that institution is not ready for diversity. So I would say it takes brave young people to be ready to step into that space because inevitably that space will not be ready. There will be some folks that are just not ready for change, are not ready to see things, you know, shaken up and happen in that regard. But definitely we have some folks that are ready to go. I think that with some nourishment and some training and some resources, they will be phenomenal in a sport. And I just pray that there'll be folks there that receive them, that can help support them and give them a safe space. Mm-hmm. This past discussion sort of relates to talking about confidence. And I love talking about confidence. And you seem to have a ton of it. Where and how did you cultivate that? Yeah, it hasn't always been that way, uh, for sure. I am, I think, out of the trio, I'm probably the one who is the most fearful what if this happens? What if it doesn't work? I've definitely lived in that world before. But again, living like that doesn't necessarily produce change. I'll, I'll say that SIAT has helped me just as much as it has helped any of our participants and family members. I've learned so much having to step in a leadership role and be there to support our young people. It's been a challenge for me. And I'm like, oh, wow, we've got this. It just, it just felt comfortable. Like, okay, we've got this. And I think a part of that lies with this just literally being a calling. This is what I was put on earth to do. This is what we were put on earth to do. So because I think this is a gift for me to do, I am extremely comfortable because it's, it's, I just quit my job to do this, you know? So it's like, this has to work. But that's how important we feel that this work is. And that's how drawn to it that we are. So I have no choice but to be confident because I know it was given to me by God. Does confidence come up, the discussion of confidence come up in the SIAT programs, or is it just sort of a, an outtake of the work that you're doing in, in nature? Yeah, I think that, you know, we have the benefit of speaking to our community in a way that may sound a bit different than how other people may, you know, speak to young people. So confidence definitely comes up, but it may not be the word confidence. But we speak life into our young people when we see them having a little bit of hesitation we tap into what we know that they're feeling and we give them words. It might be a lyric to a rap song. 
It might be one of those words that you heard, you know, your aunt or your grandmother say for years and decades growing up that is kind of common across the black community. We might throw out something like that and it instantly everyone understands what you're saying. It's like, oh, okay. Being able to to use that connection, I think, is how we speak confidence into our young people. So it may not be as, you know, uh, plain as you can do this. You are confident. You are strong. I mean, yes, we say that kind of stuff too, but I think a lot of it just comes out in ways that is so familiar to us and our kids receive it that way. For you personally, what are your favorite activities and, you know, like what does your physical activity look like for the week? Oh, just personally, um, probably walking my dog for sure. So I walk my dog, of course, daily but then I have to like go out and do a walk without my dog because my dog is annoying so I have to then (laughs) go out and do my let me listen to my podcast and do my own personal walk hiking we do we'll meet up a team hood to do some hikes throughout the week just as our way of doing like a walking meeting and making sure we have that personal touch point a lot of people think I mean we're extremely close but I think people think that we like live together or something but it's like no like sometimes I haven't seen my sister in you know two weeks and it's kind of crazy so we make sure that we put those moments in to hike and be with one another when the weather warms up we definitely bike together um, which is super cool and also like here recently we've been doing like designing experiences in the outdoors like we had a Sunday dinner that took place at Cuyahoga Valley National Park under a tent so we brought the comforts of Sunday dinner with family but we had it outdoors. So people could walk outside on the trail. They can take pictures. They felt the breeze. But they were also like in this family setting with music that was comforting to them and food that was comforting to them. So we try to bring that in as a part of the outdoor experience as well. Are you going to do that again? We are. We are. In 2023, we do plan to have a few Sunday dinners. So we'll make sure those are posted on our website and people can join us for those. The first one was such a hit. And we thank our partners at the Conservancy for Cuyahoga Valley National Park for being supportive in that work. And what are your days like? Because, you know, you run SIAT, you now have this national organization as well, and you have a full-time job, right? Well, I just left my full-time job in June. Oh, wow. Okay. Yes. Yes. I kind of consulted with some other folks that were full-time entrepreneurs and working on their organizations. And honestly, they just gave me the confidence to do it, saying that it would never feel like it's the right time. You need the capacity to do the work for your organization. You got to take that leap. And I'm like, this sounds crazy to me, but it's been six months now and I cannot have asked for a better opportunity to just, you know, be 100% involved in our organization so that it can thrive and be what we kind of imagine it to be. So on a daily basis, it's a lot of meetings, it's grant writing, it's organizing the 10, 13 years worth of stuff that we didn't have time to organize and categorize, um, doing that piece. And then just kind of, you know, what can we do to take SIAT to the next level? That's a big change. Yeah, definitely. How will the organization change, do you think? I think that a lot of times, many of the comments that we receive have been, you guys are so busy doing the work that you don't have time to tell your story. And I think that in 2023, more people will know the SIAT story and know the work that we're doing. I mean, we get so many, you've been doing this for over 10 years and I had no idea. And we're going to change that in 2023. What are your goals long-term? I mean, not just you, but you and your sister and and mom, like what are your goals for SIAT? Long-term, I mean, we definitely want to 
really create the framework for some of our older SIAC kids to still be connected. I sometimes cringe at, you know, the programs that I was a part of as a young person where I aged out and that was it. But it meant so much to me that I wish I could have still held on to it. So we don't want to have them feel that aging out. Syed is a family. So it's like really pouring into our alum as they are in college and beginning to start their own lives, knowing that Syed is a family and a resource for them. Also, I think a lot of the work that we want to do moving forward is kind of that that marketing piece, telling the story. We would love to have some firm relationships with school districts to do this work, as a lot of the priorities within the school districts are, you know, social emotional type of priorities, but also combating behavioral issues. We know that SIAT works in allowing a kid to kind of grow and develop and find their footing. So SIAT is kind of like that perfect team building opportunity for young people. So we are going to work with a couple of CMSC schools in 2023 to kind of uh, kind of pilot some new opportunities for camping and then connecting all of our programming to STEM and what that looks like in the classroom. So no better way to like learn the curriculum of science and math, but then to apply it in a fun way outside to make the connections. So we definitely want to grow those relationships with our educational partners in the future. You mentioned something about career and mentoring or hooking the kids up to other people who know about the kind of work that they're interested in doing. Is there a formal sort of mentorship program or a career development program? So I've had this idea of creating like a kind of a, a SIAT Rolodex of folks that are in these fields where I know that I can call them and say, hey, I have someone who's interested in being a pilot and I know you have gone through this. So can you please have a conversation with them? You know, what does that look like? So I'm creating this like SIAT Rolodex of folks that we're still meeting along the way. Like just last year, we met a black guy who was a pilot who worked for the military, who had this engineering experience. I mean, his resume was amazing. And he also loved to work with kids and talk to kids, you know, kind of talk them through what their journeys could look like. If it wasn't for SIAT and Get Black Outside, I would have never met this guy. So now we're creating this resource for our kids and it's going to grow as we meet, you know, more people. And then hopefully our kids can then become a resource within a Robodex that the next generation of SIAC kids can tap into. So that's what we're working on now. So not a formal curriculum as of yet, but it's really just, you know, we, sometimes we talk about how other communities have, like, they can always tap into say, Oh, my one friend is a lawyer or I'm really close friends with my doctor and, you know, they come over for lunch all the time. And we're like, dang, you know, how do we build these resources within the SIAT family? So our kids can always say, I do know someone who knows someone that can connect me in the business world and not feeling like they have to, you know, have a lack of resources. Right. Right. That's great. We've talked about traveling in the past. You know, have you done any traveling post pandemic? Not as much as we wanted to. Uh, we had a, a trip scheduled March of 2020 to Paris for my oh, birthday. I remember and, that. Yes. And then our kids, you know, we had a You Matter trip to Paris. So we are now, I think, at a comfortable state where, you know, it took us a lot to be comfortable enough to even get back on shared transportation, you know, with a group of kids. So sure. it's, it's been taking us a while and we're still very, you know, vigilant as much as we can be when it comes to precautions and stuff. But, you know, I've done a few personal trips. Ebony and I, we've done some scuba trips with our kids to Florida. Ebony and I had to get certified in Fort Lauderdale, and we did that trip solo and got our certification in April of 21. We did a trip to New Orleans for some STEM partnership work that we're working on. So, yes, I went to Jamaica, and that was all fun. So, you know, it's just 
I think getting out there around like, listen, girl, you have to live your life because one of the reasons why we said we do Saya is for the personal benefits as well. So we have to get something back from that and travel and being able to travel with our youth is so important. So I think we're we're all in and, and ready for 23 to get get back outside, as we call it. <laughs> Wasn't it hard not to travel during the pandemic? For me, that was one of the big, big losses. Um, I was like kind of, you know, going through that whole I think mental health breakdown. I'm like, what is going on, Erica? And it was, you have not been traveling. Like you have not done it. And I know that sounds so privileged and crazy to say, but that is what really kind of kept us going. When I can look at my calendar and see the next time I get a break from some of this heavy work that we're doing. At the time I was working in health disparities work, in research, and you're seeing every single day statistics of your community that are horrible you know, health outcomes that are impacting folks that look like you and you see it within your families and all that kind of stuff. It was just heavy. And I look forward to those trips to kind of help balance me out. And when that didn't happen, it was very tough. And you and Ebony have traveled frequently every year up until the pandemic. Yeah, definitely. We made it a, a part of just what we did and then helped other people kind of plan out their trips based on our experiences. A lot of it was Syed, but then I think a lot of it was personal. So even if we took a personal trip, it always had a spin to say, like, let's look at opportunities for a Syed trip, you know, when we go on this vacation or whatever the case may be. But yeah, that's super important to what we do. And I think our parents instilled that in us. I remember going to Niagara Falls. I was like four years old. And I remember that trip. And I think that's kind of where it kicked off. You mentioned the You Matters program of Syed. Talk a little bit more about taking kids on trips. Yeah, so our You Matter is like what we call our ultimate study abroad and leadership experience. So we thought, what better way to prepare our young people for college or just for some of these opportunities than to do it with Sayat while they're like with us in this protected safe space. Let's get their passports. Let's take them abroad for the first time. We wanted our kids to kind of go into high school and college already having the experience of doing a study abroad trip so that they might feel more compelled to do study abroad in college. There's not a lot of diversity in college study abroad programs, and we wanted to give them the confidence to do that once they went to school. So that is where that came from. And a part of our work with You Matter is when we go to a different country, we wanted to focus on those environmental issues that that country was facing and some of the things that they were doing to make an impact on some of the environmental crises that might be taking place within our country so we can bring some of that knowledge back home. We looked at their government structure and what were some of the civic engagement opportunities for their citizens to step in and kind of be heard. And then we looked at the cultural exchange piece. So of course we ate good food, we played soccer, we um, were able to meet with uh, government leaders and we did like language classes leading up to trips. So I think that was like, man, important. So we're, we're super grateful to be able to get back to that work because it was so powerful. What was the last trip you took? Costa Rica. Wow. Awesome. Yeah, Costa Rica. And we did a, a quick trip to D.C. during the pandemic where it was a smaller group of kids with a smaller experience. But as far as like our abroad trip, the last one was Costa Rica. So what do you have planned next? Puerto Rico. Oh, cool. Great. Yeah, Puerto Rico and then Ghana. So we're super excited to plan a trip to, to Ghana because that is like really, really making the connection back to, you know, our ancestral roots and, and our story as a whole. And do you have connections already in Ghana? We do. We wow. do. Yeah. 
Amazing. And that is, is that will be in 2023 or 24? We're looking at late 23 for okay. Ghana. Great. Yeah, late 23. And hopefully, you know, it's all funding dependent, but we are working with some opportunities to get some funding now and then thinking about, you know, what does our group size look like? This will be my first time in Africa. So we're super excited. That's great. Well, thank you so much. Did I miss anything or anything that you want to highlight? So I'm going to do like a takeaway. Like one thing that we would share to folks who are listening to this, I think an important message would be to, as SIAC normalizes the presence of black and brown faces in outdoor spaces, just let people be. Uh, We get a lot of people who, I, I think we stand out so much and we don't want to. So I think when we begin to change that narrative of who recreates outside, it'll become more normal for people to see, you know, a variety of different backgrounds and faces and people in outdoor spaces. But a lot of times, Black folks are not looked at as experts in these spaces. And I would just challenge some of our institutions and organizations to begin to look at Black and Brown folks who have the experience as experts to hire them to be seen in these park spaces, to be seen in these roles where, you know, community members as a whole, so we all can be able to see this narrative and shift of who's outdoors. I think that's the most important piece. Yeah, and then to support SIAD, of course, we love uh, any opportunity to engage with groups that can offer us green space, utilize for camping. Uh, we've had folks donate, you know, great gear over the years. I think we have Amazon wish list, you know, things like that. Of course, kids can go through some gear. And a lot of times we outfit a kid. And who are we to take away that coat at the end of the ski season when we know that kid doesn't have a coat? You know, it's just like, it just, it's a lot. It's a lot to kind of work in this space and make sure that, you know, the needs are met and the needs are so great. So great. Well, thank you. Thanks very much. Thank you. If you have enjoyed this episode and would like to give back to help us out, go to patreon.com slash hearher or to buymeacoffee.com slash hearher. All of you listeners are so important to the show and fuel me as I prep for recordings and do all the editing. Of course, coffee fuels me too, so I actually really love the idea of buy me a coffee. I'm also really thrilled that you're here and listening, and please spread the word about the show. Thank you to Erica for being here today to talk about SIAT, the organization she started with her sister and mother more than 10 years ago. Remember to visit the show notes to learn more about SIAT, how to donate to their programs, and the other things Erica mentioned in the conversation. Hear Her Sports is a proud member of Evergreen Podcasts. For more information or to check out other shows on the network, please visit evergreenpodcast.com. A good place to start is, of course, Women's Running Stories and Keeping Track, both other female athlete podcasts I know that you'll love. You can always reach me by sending an email to elizabeth at hearhersports.com or connect through social at hearhersports. Until next time, bye-bye. Women's Running Stories, where we explore the intersection between running and life. Because every woman who is committed to a running journey has a story to tell, and this is where you'll find those stories. I am host and producer Cherie Louise Turner. I'm a 53-year-old runner, and together with original music by musician and runner Cormac O'Regan, 
we bring these inspirational stories to life. Please join us to fuel your adventures.